0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, June the 9th, 2023. Not for the first or the last time, the headlines are dominated by a certain Donald Trump. Uh, The headlines in the New York Times are about him facing multiple felonies in a new indictment, the same in the Wall Street Journal and in the Washington Post, uh, the headline, a very large headline, with Trump not, not looking particularly happy in a f- photograph. He has been charged in a secret documents case. Uh, what? It's very interesting to think of the view of America from overseas, one of America's foremost observers of its complicated and perhaps rotten politics, is my guest today. Mark Leela is the author of The Once and Future Liberal, and he's just written a marvellous piece uh, in Liberties, um, which uh, is, I guess, in a sense, uh, uh, a continuation of his discussion uh, in the previous book, The Once and the Now. As it happens, Mark is in Italy on the island of Ischia, a beautiful place. Uh, I think he's based in Rome for the moment. Uh, Mark, what's the view of all this from overseas? Or are you too busy on the beach or in the shops or in the restaurants to worry too much about that?
1: Well, uh, in fact, I've used this year to disconnect as much as possible. Um, You know, I I know you've written about how the Internet ruins everything and... um, and uh, it's certainly uh, being disconnected has uh, made me realize uh, just how much it affects everything uh, in my life. So I, I actually, you know, I look at the American papers now and again, but um, I'm mainly looking at uh, European papers, the French, Italian, and sometimes the German. And uh, you know, uh, there the, the general attitude towards this is that I mean, ever since Trump was elected, we've become another crazy country that can't be counted on. And, uh, and that, uh, you know, just below the surface in the country right now, even though Joe Biden is president, is, uh, are a lot of the same passions and nutty ideas and um, sort of barely contained violence, verbal and physical uh, and so, you know, we're in their eyes, we're the problem child, but we're the biggest child too.
0: Your piece, uh, fascinating piece, The Once and the Now, is an essay, a short essay, but very rich, packed with ideas, a critique and an analysis of nostalgia. Trump, of course, in many ways, is exhibit A on the nostalgia uh, narrative. Do you see him as? in political terms, is above all else defined for, at least in terms of his appeal, his nostalgia for a greater America, for a different America, for an imaginary America?
1: Yeah, well, you know,
0: w- one thing that's interesting
1: about, um, you know, the way the slogan, make America great has been used, is that uh, we're never told by Trump just what exactly we were great at, And, of course, there's no political program of how we can uh, be great again. And, you know, as as I say in the piece, there are really two different kinds of nostalgia. You know, there's one political nostalgia. I mean, there's one that uh, looks to returning to some past uh, that is pretty specific uh, because the political nostalgic mind uh, is under the... Uh, or in the grip of a kind of picture of history, where at a certain point in history, there was a break. And ever since then, we've been shipwrecked. So the book before, uh, the one you mentioned, was called The Shipwrecked Mind, and it was in part about sort of reactionaries. And, uh, and, and so one form is to look back, but with a pretty clear sense of what things were like, even if it's incorrect, or even if it's idealized, at least it's elaborate, Um, The other kind looks back to a past and says all of our present problems is that we've lost something, but we can't go back there. Therefore, we need to create a nation or people that show the same virtues as in the past, but in a new, more muscular, and and hopefully more successful way. And so uh, old-fashioned uh conservatism after the french revolution looked back fascism interestingly looked back in order to try to build a rather frightening future neither is the case with trump and his followers uh there's no specificity to it and so there's a kind of free floating a disquiet and a sense of people uh, who are holding back a dike and they don't even know what's on the other side, but they're convinced that it's going to come crashing through and and affect their lives. And uh, so it, it, it's rather different. And what's interesting is that, you know, often in, in uh, you know, political developments, you'll have ideas that then, you know, light people up inside and they act on them. What's interesting here is that uh, there now is a class of right-wing reactionary thinkers who, uh, Patrick Denine, being one of them, his book just came out. Um, and they use reactionary not in a moral sense, but in a precise sense, I think. Um, and uh, and there, uh, uh, some of these thinkers are looking to Victor Orban's Hungary. Some of them have moved there. Uh, there's this movement of national conservative. National conservatism that links all these similar people around the world, all looking to Hungary as this example for all of us, that has followed on the Trump phenomenon. It has not preceded. So uh, it's trying to catch the energy that is somehow there in the Trump uh, populism and similar ones elsewhere, and give it a direction. But I don't think that those who are writing in in now that that vein really have understood what's going on, which I don't think
0: necessarily is reaction in the ordinary sense, but yeah. it's something else. Yeah, you had a wonderful um, suggestion in in the essay, Mark, uh, about photography. You are obsessed with photography these days. Lots of theorists on why. You make a really intriguing. Uh, observation and perhaps suggestion or explaining why we're so obsessed with photography. You argue that photography is an exercise in, and I'm quoting you, in anticipatory nostalgia. We foresee that come a certain age, we will want to experience an odd pleasure that comes from reflecting on what has been lost. Do you think that in some ways the whole Orban Trump-Maloney phenomenon is an exercise in what you call forward nostalgia.
1: Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, that is forward uh, forward looking. I mean, it's not quite what I was talking about with photography. With photography, I was trying to figure out um, why, you know, trying to think through the psychology the experience of picking up an old family album. And you know, we look at it and we see a, a ourselves holding a baby at a certain point and at a certain point, um, you know, with our arms around shivering kids on a beach who don't want to be there and um, and trying to analyze the experience of that of looking to the past and this mix of pleasure and pain that comes with it. The pleasure of remembering the pain of marking the loss of of, of some of these moments and. Um, So, but the people you mentioned are for it's not that they're planning for some nostalgia, but rather I think the idea is to keep stoking this little engine of nostalgia that, you know, uh, that can really use this fuel just about anything in the past. And so as you move ahead, you keep referring to things in the past that somehow will help. But the further you are, you are away from these events or these ways of life that have been lost and uh, the less people have historical consciousness because they live in the present, I don't know how long that can last. And so, you know, my, what I anticipate is that, you know, the, these movements will just be uh, turned into hard right parties and that the appeal to the past uh, will kind of fall away. And um, they'll just be, you know, uh, you know, in a class of movements that fascism also belonged to, but they're not fascist. Um, and uh, yeah, and 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 sort of disconnected, I think, from the bulk of the population in most of these countries. Uh, this is really being fed by and uh, consumed by uh, a fringe and all these. Pe- Places, uh, but uh, you,
0: you mentioned, uh, Mark, uh, denine and this new wave of conservatism. Aren't these people, though, and, and excuse perhaps the vulgarity of this phrase, aren't they kind of postmodern nostalgists and they're all too aware of what they're doing and they're not shy to advertise that, which is different from previous waves of, of nostalgia and political nostalgists that... That Danine's playing a game, and 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 he's not shy to show off about acknowledging that he knows exactly the game he's playing.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's. I think that's a an important thought. Um, there, you know, there is something instrumental about it, which I think is is, is what you're expressing there. Um, what's interesting with Danine, you know, I've read a lot of him, but I haven't read the book yet because I'm away. Is that? Um, He and a few other thinkers, there's a law professor at Harvard called Adrian Vermeule. What they seem to be arguing is that whatever we, yes, we've lost things in the past, but what we need is a new sense of the common good. And the common good is not, um, it has a social, political, uh, social welfare component to it. And we need an economy that, you know, is more attentive to keeping uh, community together but also need somehow to enforce a uh, sort of bounds on public public morality. And just what that will mean, I don't know. Um, And it's very easy to see how that could
0: be hijacked. Mark, uh, as I said uh, in our introduction, your book, The Once and Future Liberal After Identity Politics, was enormously successful and controversial a kind of critique of progressivism, but also uh, written from a progressive perspective. I wonder, you don't really talk about this in the essay uh, in Liberties, but it occurred to me reading it that progressives are are themselves also enormously vulnerable to uh, nostalgia in the sense, and I've had so many of these people on the show, and they all basically say the same thing it's very simple how to fix everything. We we need to go back to the New Deal, to a strong state, to whether it's in England or, or the United States or Europe, a, a social democracy, turning everyone into Denmark. Is there some truth to that, that just as the right, of course, is imprisoned by nostalgia, uh, the left is in the same situation? And that's what makes sense and explains our, our, our cultural and political impoverishment at the moment is everyone's nostalgia.
1: Yeah, in fact, I, I write about this in uh, The Shipwreck Mind uh, that, um, you know, the categories of uh, revolutionary and reactionary, uh, they exist on both right, right and left, and you can have a kind of... It's especially when... Uh, you know, a a political force lacks a sense of program or even more deeply, a kind of theory or view of human nature and society that they either want to protect or they want to um, get us to, right? And so Marxism was not nostalgic at all. Uh, it, It was just taken for granted by Marx and Engels that history moves and in fact, up until the bourgeois era, there were all sorts of good things that came from uh, the dynamism of human action that gave birth even to capitalism. Um, but it, after that, there had to be another stage. And so there are all sorts of assumptions about what human nature is, uh, how, uh, how people work together in society, how history moves, right? But um, the, the progressive left today... Uh, has abandoned this Marxist view of what we are individually and together and how history moves. And once one is bereft of those things, uh, one then becomes, you know, looks to the past, uh, not, not just to learn like one thing we might use, but there is a kind of dreaminess about this, about this past and, they, and they're movable, you know, it's a movable feast, um, the past. And so sometimes it's a nostalgia about the 60s. Sometimes it's a nostalgia about pre-industrial life. Um, Yeah. And so uh, when uh, the right and left no longer are grounded in a view of what we are, it's very easy just to keep pointing forward and backwards without staring the present in, in the face and trying to understand it.
0: You're uh, a historian as well as a philosopher. Have there ha, Can you think of some equivalent historical moments where we're stuck in the past, where everybody, both on the left and the right, can't figure out a way forward or isn't able to disanchor themselves if there's such a word from the past?
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, the, 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 the period after the French Revolution throughout Europe is a very good example, because after the terror, uh, there was this sense that history had taken a wrong turn, and uh, so uh, some of those who were skeptical of or uh, had opposed the French Revolution were able to say, ah, this is what happens, when you have a revolution, some of them wanted to restore the old order, and some of them sort of withdrew from uh, from present day society or called us to by becoming romantics. And there were some political romantics, and they sort of fed into eighteen forty eight revolutions. But but also there was just a mood there. There was a mood that somehow uh, both the old regime and the new terror that also was tied up with industrialism, this new world that was aborning, uh, were, um, you know, inhuman. And so the impulse there was to romantically look at the past. Um, and one could do that by looking at a more hierarchical society, or, or one could pick up Rousseau and misinterpret him and think he's calling us back to the bush. Um, but romanticism throughout the 19th century on um, right and left, I think, is an example of what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, that elegic mood uh, might be manifested among some progressives in rehashing Rousseau in terms of nativism and a return to a pre-industrial society. We've done lots of shows about that as well. Mm. Your essay is dominated by Rome. Uh, perhaps because that's where you you're, you're spending a lot of your time these days and one of the things that occurred to me is one way to explain our own nostalgic mood our love of Roman fashions like stoicism is in again this this political crisis what what do you make of uh, our continual obsession with Rome, there was, of course, that famous book, Are, are We Rome Yet? Imagining America as Rome. What, what has spending time in Rome taught you about whether or not we should even be asking that question, are we Rome?
1: Well, actually, I think we should be because um, there, there's such a lack of historical consciousness whatsoever uh, at, at present uh, that, Uh, I have the sense that because of who we were educated now, the way we live online and all the usual things people list that, uh, and our, our self-absorption, I think, as individuals within ourselves is that uh, we're losing the capacity to find parallels, you know, being nostalgic for the past, wanting to go back, finding parallels is trying to look for lessons, right? And so you know, Rome, as you as you rightly say, has always been there for the picking, and you can focus. You know, at the present, just to my mind, you can think about how the transition from the Roman Republic to the Empire and the consequences of that, and try to think about if we're thinking just about the United States, uh, thinking about you know how the country changed, you know, beginning in through the 19th century and throughout, but especially since the First World War and became an empire. We can also look at what empire does to human psychology, um, luxury, um, decadence of morals. Um, on the other hand, a kind of, space for people to explore because everything's being done in the empire at this level way above you. There's no participation. And so you can, um, you know, find little, it tends to be a period in when the arts flourish. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a conference in Dublin run by a, an Italian magazine. and it, it was about um, uh, trying to understand how uh, the empires in Europe uh, had and their collapse, especially after World War I, both, tr- both the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, led to kind of many of the political problems we're having today. And it was very interesting to see what nostalgia there was for empire. Uh, though people say, of course, I'm not nostalgic, but wasn't it interesting that we had a more multi- more multicultural societies? I mean, it's, it's a bit exaggerated, um, that there was more toleration. Uh and essentially it was a a you know, it it, it was a period, I mean, life in empires is always one of them. And everyone else is depoliticized above the crust. And so there was a kind of feeling that wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to worry about politics if someone just ran it for us.
0: Yeah, I think I wonder whether Erdogan in that sense, I was just in Turkey last week for the election. Um whether Erdogan is an example of someone who can, so to speak, have their empire and eat it, in that he's, he's obviously an inheritor of Atatürk, but on the other hand, he's also very critical of Ottomanism and, and the empire. What do you make of, of Erdogan, and is he himself, uh, with Maloney and Orban, uh, a signpost, for better or worse, to the future?
1: Well, if I, I would put him in not in the category of those two other figures. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not a student of a Turkish history of the Ottoman Empire, but but it is interesting. And I mentioned this at the end of, uh, of the article you've been referring to. Mm. Uh, how uh, at present, you know, we have a few countries, and I just mentioned Russia and China. It hadn't occurred to me to mention. Turkey, but uh, now that you've mentioned, I, I should have done that. Um, you call it the, the two Edens
0: problem. Which right, really right. And, mm-hmm. and
1: so they have both this idea way back that, you know, once we were kings, once we had an empire, uh, we were great, right? And then that old past, especially in, in the case of Russia and China, was overthrown by a revolution. And we can also point back and say, yes, but we had the revolution, which was good. But now, what are these leaders Putin and Xi supposed to refer to, right? Because either you can romanticize the communist period, which overthrew the older imperial order, or you can treat that as an embarrassment and look to the old empire and say, well, we just want to go back and again be an empire. And so they have these two that that they might, I refer to, and I think it's more explicit in China, but there's this idea now, I think, of trying to rethink the communist period as a part of a continuum of empire. And that you know the communist experience was not meant to be just international. There would be no more empires and every people will um, sort of govern itself. Uh, through socialism, Uh, but that um, we've always been, you know, we've always been this people who have had and deserve uh, an empire. And uh, so it's an interesting take on this. And, you know, I I wish I knew more about Erdogan, uh, but it would be interesting to think about him uh, in these terms for sure.
0: Yeah. I was really struck by the ending, a very, very pessimistic ending suggesting that the war's, Uh, or the, the persecution of Muslims in China and the Ukrainian war that you call them the latest victims are to be sacrificed on the altar of this fantasy. You suggest there will be others, perhaps in Turkey, there'll be the Kurds who of course continue to define for better or worse, the political conversation. I wonder Um, Mark, whether what we've all missed or progressives, most progressives missed, although I don't think you have, is the assumption that nationalism would simply go away. Because ultimately, the wars in Ukraine and the persecution of Muslims in China, they're all manifest and and, uh, Erdogan, of course, are all manifestations of nationalism. In the same issue of uh, Liberties that you're in, there was a very interesting piece by Michael Waltzer. I'm sure you know, not only his work, but him, a remarkable man suggesting, I think, I mean, he was too polite to put it explicitly, but suggesting that progressives take another look at nationalism and particularly liberal nationalists like Jefferson and Mazzini. And it's actually kind of interesting that he says that, as you suggest, that after the French Revolution, there was this intellectual crisis. And, of course, both Jefferson and uh, Mazzini were themselves I guess, in a way, beneficiaries or consequences and causes of that crisis. So what are your thoughts about nationalism? Can we have liberal nationalism? Is that a signpost? Is that one way out of our predicament, out of this this current uh, prison of nostalgia? And and yet, of course, nationalism itself is a form of nostalgia.
1: Right, right. Um, Absolutely. And I think this, Michael was, you know, absolutely right to bring this up again at this moment. And I'm sure, um, you know, I haven't read this piece yet in Liberties about this either, but um, that uh, what uh, has gotten lost, I think is the sense that at certain moments in the history of the left was very clear, which is that uh, in order to bring about the changes you want, people have to feel a stake in their place, not just a stake in the world revolution, not just a stake in seeing a nicer world where everyone is nicer, but you want your town, your country, um, your, um, you know, you, you can say the EU, um, that you, you have a commitment and an emotion, an emotion that attaches you to where you are. And so, bringing about change matters to you because this place matters to you. But because of the history of nationalism and in uh, certain kinds of of nationalism, uh, I think far too many liberals and people on the left uh, not only uh, misunderstand uh, what to begin with, They haven't understood that one of the reasons they keep failing is they don't want to encourage people to be uh, sort of be committed to their own, which means distinguishing themselves from other people, right? But if people don't feel attached, they don't act. And so you need to work with human attachment, which is non-rational, it's emotional, right? Um, And so they lose out to people on the right who do in one way or another appeal to this. And there is a history, uh, Michael points out, Mazzini, you can go back to the the 19th century. There's a very good, um, I'm sure he refers to this in his piece, uh, a very, very interesting uh, Israeli thinker, Yael Tamir, Y-A-E-L-T-A-M-I-R, I spell it because she has a book called Liberal Nationalism that anyone's interested in this subject just has to read. And, uh, you know, she is one of the founders of Peace Now. She's very much on the left.
0: You have to get her on the show, actually.
1: Yeah, there you go. And, you know, she's just, you know, really intelligent and forceful about these things. And she really makes a very good case for that, you know. And it's it has to do with our psychology, right? That's what, getting back to what I was saying before, that, The left doesn't have a psychology anymore. We need an anthropology of what we're like. And if you ignore the fact that we just are attached to our own, and we ought to be attached to our families, we ought to be attached to our communities, we ought to be attached to our nations, Um, and that not only is there nothing wrong with that if it isn't violent, uh, but also you need it if you want change. And so one of the biggest mistakes in that the left post-60s took uh, was in simply stressing toleration and difference and not understanding that to achieve the world they want in which people are more tolerant, you also need them to be committed to building a world together.
0: Final question, uh, Mark. Fascinating uh, conversation. You talk about attachment to our own, but you and I are talking, I'm in California, you're in, uh, you're in the Mediterranean on an island. We have a lot in common. We probably know lots of people in common. Gellner, of course, famously argued about nationalism, that it represented this convergence of a sense of identity with the actual politics of, of the industrial world, so that, that geography became the central political fact. Mm -hmm. these days it isn't these days you and I have much more in common than uh people uh, in the middle of America so when we talk about attachment to our own and nationalism what happens if we're more attached to people if I'm in San Francisco and I'm more attached to people in Berlin or Rome or or London than Kansas or 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 Dakota then what then How do we rethink politics in a progressive sense? Do we just fall back on a a rather flabby internationalism, which never seems to work? And of course, the answer is not the Internet. You know, I don't believe that. And I don't suppose you do either.
1: Right, right. Well, what is happening, I think, is we're having a new kind of empire, if you like, develop you know, around the internet and these corporations that kind of determine all these things in the way we live and escape regulation. Um, But, uh, you know, what what I keep trying to say to people on the left is that look what happened with Trump. We have lost, we are losing the right for a woman to choose to have an abortion in the country. We are regressing when it comes to gay rights and even toleration of gay people. Uh, The situation of African-Americans, the country, uh, has not been addressed because we have not been able to appeal to people in our country and get elected. But the left today is far more interested in cultural change and political change. What they don't understand is that they're going to get the political changes they don't want that's going to impede them from continuing the cultural changes they want to make. And so they need, as long as we have governments, we have a place where we need to feel attached.